The Pulse of Providence with Steph Machado on WPRI.com. Thank you for watching The Pulse of Providence. I'm Steph Machado, and joining me today is a doctor who has become a bit of a household name among folks in this country who watch news about the coronavirus, but he is actually now here in Providence, the Dean of Public Health at Brown University, Dr. Ashish Jha. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me here. So I want to start um, by asking you, actually, you know what, first of all, how are you enjoying Providence so far? Because you've been here for a couple of months. You came down from Cambridge um, to our humble Ivy League school here in Providence. Um, how are you liking the city? I'm loving it. I am loving it. You know, I I go out for walks. Uh, I, I set up this thing called Explore Providence with me where students and staff and faculty could join me for walks that I do around Providence. And I have just loved getting to know the city. Uh, again, obviously all strange during pandemic times. Uh, so not as much stuff open, but incredible murals, lots of beautiful architecture, a lot of good coffee shops. And I have delved into some of the donut wars of Providence. Uh, yes. And for the sake of, of uh, harmony, I will not tell you my favorite donuts. That is smart. That's a good move. So um, after Thanksgiving here in Rhode Island, we are going into a two-week pause. The governor announced this last week. It's an effort to tamp down on the increase in coronavirus cases uh, that we've seen here in Rhode Island. But I want to know, in your experience so far, you, looking at data in the pandemic, is two weeks enough to get enough information on whether the pause worked? Can we look at data at the end of two weeks and say, okay, we're ready to reopen some of these things? Or do you need more time to see if it worked, if cases are down, if it, if it decreases the hospital capacity? Yeah, so I think two weeks is sort of that bare minimum. That's basically what you need. Uh, we should start seeing by the end of that two week period, let's say a week or 10 days in, you'll start seeing the effect of that policy. Uh, so I think if the governor had done it for much less than two weeks, it probably wouldn't have been useful, but it will give us the data we need. And at that point, uh, the governor, who I think has been really very data-driven and, and has tried to make policies based on evidence, uh, will be able to decide uh, what she wants to do next. Um, so I think it's a, it's a pretty reasonable timeline to start with. Um, speaking of data-driven policies, um, one of the items in the two-week pause is that gyms and fitness studios are going to close. We've seen a, quite an outcry from the owners of those facilities who say, it, we're, you know, we're an indoor space. Sure, we know indoor spaces can cause the virus to spread, but a lot of indoor spaces are being kept open, including indoor dining. Is there evidence that indoor dining with masks off is safer than a gym or a fitness studio? Yeah, the evidence on this is a little bit mixed. Um, we do know that gyms can be a source of spread. And especially because in gyms, people are obviously working out, they're breathing hard. Uh, and the harder you breathe, the more you virus you ex uh, exhale. Uh, so that can be a problem. And certainly if there's any gets to be any gym classes are, are potentially really dangerous. So there is evidence around this. You know, dining is one where there is a bit more of a mixed uh, set of, of data. Uh, the key issue on dining is how crowded is it? I mean, obviously full indoor dining right now would be a disaster. Um, but the question is if you pull it way back, have only 25 or 33% of capacity, uh, can you make it safer? And I think the answer is you can, you still need to work on making some things like ventilation. And if you wanna be 
purely focus on keeping the virus to you know as low as possible, you might close indoor dining. I think the governor's trying to thread a needle here where she's pulled back on indoor dining, uh, but has closed other things that we also know are high risk. Do you think a pause on indoor dining is a good idea right now, just based on the numbers you're seeing here in Rhode Island? Well, I think, look, there, there is no single policy. I look at what the governor has done here versus like what Governor Whitmer has done of Michigan. And they're very similar, but a little different. I think we'll learn from looking at both of them to see which ones work better. Overall, it's the package of activities that I think is really important. Any single thing you can nitpick and say you can do it this way or that. Um, I do think pulling back on indoor dining as a governor did was a really important step. Um, I've seen some doctors on, on Twitter and whatnot say, you know, it's great that we're doing this pause, but I wish we didn't have to wait 11 days for it to start. Um, Thanksgiving is on Thursday, Black Friday. Um, on Friday, you know, even people that don't shop, they have the day off work. Maybe they'll go to a bar or restaurant. Um, are you worried about those gatherings and what that will do to Rhode Island's um, situation? Yeah, so I think what we know right now is probably the biggest spread is happening in people's homes uh, because we tend to think of homes as our safe place. Uh, and that makes sense. And when you're with your family that lives with you, it is a safe place. But the problem is that when you invite other people over, when you bring friends over, family, other extended family over, they can bring the virus along. And much of the spread is happening from people who have no symptoms, who otherwise feel just fine. So I, I am worried about the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. I'm not sure that the governor's policies would have changed what people do over Thanksgiving, uh, given that you know, Thanksgiving is, a, is a, obviously an important celebration for a lot of people, uh, I think. So I really do think at this point, the key policy is to talk about how people can stay at home and not have large gatherings at home. That's probably the most important thing we can be doing. And, and on that issue, I think the governor has been really clear that, that people really have to live in their indoor gatherings uh, at home. I think some people have probably already planned travel or planned a small gathering before the guidance came out last week from the governor and, and from the CDC. It, is there a way to safely have, let's say a dinner of four or five people even if they don't live in the same household um, on Thursday, do opening windows, for example, uh, mitigate the spread inside a home or is that not quite enough? Absolutely. No, I, I look at this as a, a risk continuum, right? So if you wanna be the safest, have dinner with your household. If you are, if you've already committed, you're gonna go see family, um, there are things you can do to make it safer. Again, one thing you can do is if you have two or three families getting together, maybe have while you're eating, have them eat separately and, uh, and keep windows open. Wear masks as much as you can indoors. The safest thing would be to try to eat outdoors. Now that's not always gonna be super comfortable, but the bottom line is some people have heaters, they have fire pits, they have other ways that they can make it warmer. There is no like perfect thing here, but there's a lot you can do to make it safer. Outside is better more ventilation is better, more ma mask wearing is better, keeping the number as small as possible is better, and push towards better on all of those things, and, and you really reduce the risk uh, much more than if you don't do those things. And what about going to get a test this week? Is that useful if you haven't been quarantining the past you know, week or so? Yeah, you know, a lot of people do think that a negative test kind of buys them out of all of those things, and unfortunately doesn't. And the way to think about this is imagine that yesterday I got infected 
Um, I, I got a test today. I, I wouldn't be positive. I, if I got a test tomorrow, I wouldn't be positive. I'd probably be positive about three days after infection. And so you could get a negative test. Uh, you could already be infected. Uh, and then you'll turn positive in a day or two and you'll start spreading the virus and you may have no symptoms. And this is why a negative test alone isn't enough. Um, and even if you get a negative test, which does help, uh, you still want to try to do as many of those things of mask wearing, distancing, uh, windows open, eating outdoors as you possibly can. I want to ask you about the schools because the governor has cited um, you in her briefings about why it's so important to keep schools open. It seems that will be perhaps the very last thing she would close of all the things that she might close potentially in the coming weeks if the virus numbers get worse. Um, we saw New York City schools last week uh, close because the city hit a uh, positivity rate of 3%. Right now, the city of Providence, uh, the second week of November, had a positivity rate of 7%, which is the most recent municipal data that's available. Is there a threshold or a number at which you would say, all right, the community spread is just too high. Let's do a pause of in-person schooling until we can get the community spread under control? Well, you know, this is an area where my views have changed because the evidence and data have changed. So over the summer, I would have said yes, uh, above, uh, I don't know if I would have used a threshold of percent positive, but I would use cases per 100,000 and said, at some level, you just can't do it. That's because we didn't have a lot of data over the summer because we hadn't been running schools, right, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, what has happened since the summer is a lot of schools have opened, including in places with very high levels of community transmission. And to my surprise, we have not seen the virus spread much in schools. We have not seen schools become a source of spread in the community. And we have not seen, even with high levels of community transmission, uh, kids or teachers getting uh, sick in schools. Now, obviously, kids and teachers are not immune. They can get infected outside of the school. But it almost, I mean, it really does appear like the school may be one of the safest places, both for kids and adults. And you may say, well, how could that be? I mean, it's an indoor space. Why would schools be safe? what appears to be right now going on is schools are pretty well regulated, right? Like kids are wearing masks, everybody's wearing masks. Now, I'm not saying open schools and do nothing. You gotta mitigate, you've gotta have mask wearing, you've gotta have some amount of distancing, you've gotta be able to open windows or have reasonable ventilation. But it turns out those are actually things that people can do in schools that people are not doing at home in the same way. And so I have not seen any clear threshold beyond which I would close schools. I think New York City closing their schools at 3% just doesn't make any public health sense. And what I have said is, you know, we don't close hospitals. We ask nurses and doctors and uh, other essential workers to travel to get to the hospital. We should try to think of schools as an essential service and do everything we can to protect the workers in schools, the teachers, the staff, and the kids. Uh, I think it's doable. If you're gonna close schools, my goodness, it should be the absolute last thing to close and it should be the absolute first thing to open. Uh, but I think especially K through eight, we can get away uh, without opening schools, without putting people in danger. Um, we hear a lot about children not being affected as harshly by the virus in terms of symptoms. Um, doesn't that mean though that they could be asymptomatic carriers it could, be, it could be spreading in schools we don't know. They're bringing it into the community. They're spreading it to their teachers, their parents at home. 
Yeah, that's a fair question. How do we know it's not spreading in schools, right? And the reason I feel reasonably confident at this point to say that I don't think it's spreading. And again, remember, I was the super cautious guy who over the summer was like, if there's much community transmission, you can't do this, is places opened. There's been testing happening in many schools across the country, even New York City was doing testing, random sample testing of teachers and kids and finding very little virus, very little infection within the kids and teachers in school. So it's not like we have perfect data, but we have reasonably good data, more and more data. Something that Professor Emily Oster, who's also at Brown, she's been collecting data from school districts around the country and looking at their infection numbers. Again, tiny compared to community level spread. So I feel pretty confident at this moment that uh, we have pretty good evidence that this is not a, where a lot of transmission is happening. Rhode Island is going to start a pilot program to do surveillance testing of asymptomatic students and teachers in the school. I imagine you will be very much looking forward to seeing that data as well. Absolutely. In fact, I, I, I was thrilled to hear both from uh, Dr. Alexander Scott, our health director, and, and Governor Raimondo, that, that this is what they're planning. Uh, Rhode Island has been doing a lot on trying to improve testing availability overall. And, uh, and now with more tests coming online in, online in Rhode Island, I think schools are a great place to use those tests. Uh, it'll actually offer us a lot of assurance. And if it turns out that we see large amounts of spread happening in schools, we can always close things down, but I'd be very, very surprised my guess is we're going to see that schools are reasonably safe, especially K through eight. Uh, but let's let's look at that data from Rhode Island when we have it, and then we can make smarter decisions. You've been one of the loudest voices about testing, you know, since March, talking about how we needed to ramp up the testing capacity of the country. Rhode Island has certainly ramped up its testing capacity, um, but you know, we heard from hospital leaders just last week that they don't have enough tests to even provide it to their staff members that could be getting exposed to COVID positive patients. So what is your assessment of where Rhode Island is at in terms of its testing capacity and where we should go from here? Yeah, I mean, there's a broader problem here, right? Which is that the federal government, which should really be helping out is really been AWOL. Um, and that's been the big issue that Rhode Island has done a very good job but states can't do this by themselves. They need resources. Testing supply chains are national and international supply chains. And what the, what the federal government has done is essentially asked all the states to compete with each other uh, for the same set of supplies instead of increasing the availability of these things. It's really quite frustrating. This is where we are. Again, I think Rhode Island's done a good job. I, do I wish Rhode Island had more tests? Absolutely. I think, I think Dr. Alexander Scott would say she wishes that we had more tests, our, our health director, right? Um, they are coming. There's going to be more available in the, in the weeks to come. Uh, my hope is by the end of the year, there are a lot more tests and certainly once we get into 2021, January, February, I expect much more testing available. I wish we had it today. Is there a goal you think in terms of tests per day we should be doing in Rhode Island? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, there are different targets. It's sort of the way I look at it is depends on, on what we wanna be able to achieve. What I would love to get to a point of is anybody symptomatic or asymptomatic can walk in and get a test. I'd love to be able to do ongoing testing of all the nursing homes, the schools, the healthcare workers. Uh, that will end up requiring tens of thousands of tests a day. Again, not, uh, not realistic that we're gonna get there right away, um, but I do think that's possible and uh, it'll probably take us a couple of months before, a few months before we can get to you know, many tens of thousands of tests a day, but that's what we should be shooting for. It will make everything much, much safer.
And as we ramp up to that level of testing, we're also awaiting this vaccine. Um, more news this morning about another vaccine candidate um, being uh, effective. We know that the vaccine is going to be dispersed to certain populations first, um, and it could take months, maybe till next spring, next summer, before you know maybe a healthy young person like myself gets the vaccine. But at what point do you think enough people will have gotten the vaccine that we will have some level of immunity in the in the community? that it'll be safe to resume a lot of activities. Do you have an estimate on that? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, the way I see it is it all depends on how effectively and how quickly we can get these vaccines out. Some of the vaccines are, are really very, very effective, Moderna uh, as well as Pfizer. The AstraZeneca vaccine data out today, we're still learning about it and what exactly its effectiveness is gonna be. Uh, but but we, we're gonna need to start getting these things out in December. Uh, and I expect that by the end of January, if you believe the target set by Operation Warp Speed, 50 million Americans will have gotten vaccinated. That's about 16, 17% of the population. Uh, I expect that in Rhode Island by that time, we'll have a, probably close to 20% of the population may have already been infected. And you combine them, obviously some overlap, 30, 35% of people may be immune by then. Even by the end of January into early February, we will start Mr. seeing the spread of the virus uh, slow way down. And once we get into March or April, uh, first of all, I expect widespread availability of vaccines by April. Uh, so almost anybody should be able to get it by April, maybe May at the latest. Uh, but even by before then, February, March, the virus amount of spread in the community really should start slowing way, way down. Okay, so that's optimistic for folks to hang in there. Maybe they can't get the vaccine by February, but the community spread should be down by then. Yeah, um, and this is the thing, right? We're all in this together. And so if we can get some chunk of people vaccinated, it'll help everybody because they be, their immunity helps protect everyone else too. And, and finally, you know, I want to ask you, listen, you've become a national voice on the coronavirus pandemic. Um, do you feel a sense of pressure or, or responsibility? People come to you for your take, your analysis on the data and policy decisions that they should make or decisions they should make on how to live your life, their lives. How, what is that like for you? Yeah, you know, what I try to do is I try to be honest with people about what I know and don't know. Uh, I feel like, uh, I, you know, people, people ultimately have to make their own decisions. When I talk to policymakers, I talk to governors and mayors uh, all the time. Uh, they don't always listen to me, but they, but they hear me out. And what I try to do is I try to lay out the data and the facts as I understand it. And I try to be humble about what I know and don't know. I, I certainly do not have any of, I don't have all of the answers. And, um, and you know, where, where it's a bit more funny is when people will email me or call me for personal advice. You know, what should I do with my family member here or there? Uh, in some ways that feels even more high risk, right? Because I don't want to get there. If somebody I know and love, I don't want to get that one wrong. Um, but ultimately, the way I have tried to get through this uh, is just being honest about what I know, uh, even more important to be honest about what I don't know, and try to help people think through these decisions. You know, if we had a functioning federal government that really was giving advice to people, I feel like uh, folks like me would, uh, would need to be spending less time doing this, but we're in such a difficult moment in a country, and if I can be helpful to people, I am delighted to do it. And at the same time, you you started a new job a couple of months ago. <laughs> you know, I, I know you. A lot of your attention is on the is on the 
pandemic right now, but what are your goals as the Dean of Public Health at Brown? What do you want to accomplish? Yeah, no, and I, you know, I do, I, I remind people I do have a day job. Uh, it's a, it's a really great job. I'm super excited. I was super excited before the pandemic hit. Uh, I'm even more excited now. Uh, it's a very good school of public health, but I think it can be a world-class school of public health. And, and part of it is doing two things at once, really taking on the big global health issues, global issues that really affect the whole world, but at the same time, remaining deeply embedded in Rhode Island. One of the biggest strengths of the Brown School of Public Health is how deeply engaged it is in Rhode Island. And uh, I want to double down on that strategy and make sure that uh, we are really serving the needs of people of Rhode Island. Because um, public health is, is important, obviously, but it can become too uh, theoretical. And like when you actually work in the community, you work with community groups, you work with healthcare organizations, you work with social service organizations, you get to take the ideas of public health and really test it and see uh, what works, what doesn't, and how we make things better. And, and so Rhode Island as, a, as that natural partner for Brown is I think what makes it, uh, gives it a special advantage, a special edge over other schools of public health. And I wanna make sure we really build on that. All right, well, we are looking forward to the work you do there. Providence um, is happy to have you. Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for watching Pulse of Providence. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.